My name is Chris and I'm a postdoc and associated member of ML4Q and you're listening to ML4Q&A, a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computer cluster answer questions about their work in the cluster, their research and the future of quantum. In this episode, I'm talking to Beata Cardinal, member of ML4Q and Group Beta in Forschungszentrum Jülich and at RWTH Aachen. We talk about her career from electronic devices to using these devices to couple to single photons, her favorite materials and how she didn't see a strong distinction between physics and engineering from the start. It is my pleasure today to uh, um, have Beata Cardinal on the ML4Q&A podcast. Beata studied in Technical University of Rostrau, <laughs> did her PhD in Cambridge, followed by a fellowship, postdocs in Arizona State University and Oxford and worked at Toshiba, became an associate professor and group leader at Danish Technical University and is now an associate professor at RWTH and a group leader in Jülich. Um, so you see that she has a long re uh, career to talk about. So um, let's maybe start at the at the beginning. You have a master's degree in electronics, right? That's correct, yes. So this is not physics at the time, right? Not physics at so the time. So you decided right. to do a physics PhD. That is correct. Cool. What 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 got you what got you from physics to electronics? I think I wasn't brave enough to study physics at the time, considering career options. Um, I thought I would see myself more uh, in industry than a school teacher, which would be perhaps the most obvious career after physics. However, um, as time progressed at university, I loved say, saying that I loved my electronics uh, curriculum. Part of the curriculum was um, device physics, and it convinced me that this is what I should specialize in. Uh, and it's what I did. So did you get into the field excited by like the applications from the from the engineering standpoint or more about the fundamental physics of I liked I actually uh, in in choosing electronics rather than physics um I wouldn't say that I liked one or the other more however for me electronics was a very cool and interesting uh, physical realization of mathematical, uh, very mathematical abstract concepts. And I thought it was fascinating to start from something as abstract as, as mathematical equation and realize it on transistors put in some sequence and operated in a certain way. Um, yeah. I, I shouldn't talk about myself too much, but I in my, in my work on, on superconducting circuits, I also almost always find when we do analog design or um, microwave engineering that electrical engineers would probably do this better than me. Like it's it's true that there's some parts of engineering where people are certainly, uh, uh, you know, very well prepared mm. for some of the aspects that physicists might not, you know. That's very true. So, um, of course, it was many years ago. But we had uh, physics and mathematics was uh, really the core of the degree. And when it comes to electromagnetism, solid state physics in our case, uh, linear algebra, um, I, I would say that we were really prepared to run quantum, uh, quantum experiments as we, as we do them today. Um, so I often refer to some of my linear algebra scripts from university. Um, finding it a, a good text uh, to look at. 
I mean, it's it's also we recently uh, uh, we when you do low noise uh, electronics experiments, you know, sometimes you have these uh, fancy things that you can buy from I don't know Stanford Research Systems or whatever, but sometimes you can also solder together an op amp and uh, yes. you can get a very good amplifier that is also low noise. So in a sense, a very solid knowledge of these things is is not is very helpful for for doing good physics experiments in electronics. It is, and I, I do not think that there is such a big gap between engineering and physics. As everything in life, nothing is very digital. It's, it's, uh, there is a spectrum of expertise you need. Uh, I, I think what makes a good experimental physicist is also a good grasp of uh, engineering. Um, if there even is such a distinction, I guess engineering is a sort of a little bit more targeted approach to problems rather than explorative but we need that too if we want to set up experiments yeah i think i mean especially in this this quantum information field is a very interesting case where on the one hand you have kind of lofty quantum experiments and on the other hand really hardcore engineering challenges uh, i think it's 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 almost um it's kind of a special field in that way yes so your phd thesis this was called fabrication and physics of equilibrium electron tunneling devices. How, like, let me ask you first about how much fabrication you did, because <laughs> maybe for for young students that is something to, to you know, when people hear fabrication, they Ooh. think yes, struggle. Yeah. Yes, it does not sound very fancy. I was never, I I have not been, and I'm not very good in in, <laughs> in give, giving good titles, but it is also fair. Um, good 70-75% of my time was spent on, on preparing the f devices that produced my uh, my data. Um, this was a, um, maybe I should describe a bit what it is. So equilibrium tunneling is tunneling between two uh, electron gases with no bias between them. So you can think of it as probing Fermi surface of one of the electron gas in a quantum well using the other electron gas. Uh, and I was given a task of realizing tunneling between one-dimensional and two-dimensional um, systems. And the question was how to do it. Um, th that was the title and that was the advice from my supervisor. Uh, go off and, uh, and bring me results. Uh, so, of course, um, it is challenging to create electrical contacts to two quantum worlds which are tunnel-coupled. They are very close to each other. We had some new technology in the, in the Cavendish laboratory to create independent contacts, but we also had still very primitive microelectronic uh, facilities and, and, and clean rooms, so indeed uh, it was a struggle to create, uh, to create the device. Um, to prepare the device, to isolate the 1D channels, uh, to, to avoid having some artifacts. Um, so um, my advice to any student is don't give up if your first and second year of PhD <laughs> seems to be leading you nowhere. I'm sure you are learning doing, uh, and progressing. It's just that very often the progress comes um, slowly and then there is a big jump. Uh, in uh, in performance, um, the other advice that I would give is probably not uh, not always listen to your supervisor when they tell you it's impossible. 
So at the time when I was uh, when I was doing my PhD, um, the dominant the dominant thought uh, was that if you want to see one dimensional signature of one dimensional system, you have to have very small so called split gate device to avoid uh, disorder that would smear out the effect. On the other hand, I thought, well, the signal that I'm going to have from such a sub-micron size feature is going to be very small. So I would rather take an array of one-dimensional wires and look at the signal from this device. Um, when I presented this concept to my supervisor, he said it will never work um, because of this disorder. Um, but I thought, well, still, I have to try. Luckily for me, the device worked. Uh, so I didn't have to spend another year or two working on a different device. Um, and uh, it was quite satisfactory to see it working. Um, what was even more satisfactory was to see that this device um, concept that I established, both concept and fabrication, uh, was used by students after me. Um, and uh, I, if I believe, if I remember correctly, Someone even looked at the signature of uh, Luttinger liquids uh, using this apparently too disordered system to see one dimensional um, wires. Can I can I maybe ask a little bit? Um, so for 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 non-experts, so at the time these devices were done already with electron beam lithography or. Uh, yes, they were done using electron beam lithography. We were doing our own electron beam lithography in converted SEM. Yeah, at, at your time, this was still much more exciting than it is for, for me today. That's right, that's right. It was more exciting, but of course, it was much closer to black magic than it, was, than it is today. We had all our beliefs over what is going to work and what is not going to work. No one ever dared to go into... Um, systematically studying what's going to work because it was very time consuming well um, our interest was of course in in having a device to study exciting physics so in, indeed uh, for, for example in my group we still have a one of these right pioneer machines which is an electron uh, microscope Mm -hmm. uh, but a scanning electron uh, microscope, but uh, uh, the uh, of course today uh, the machine can also be used for electron beam writing. But the software and everything to take a pattern that you draw in your computer and write it onto the machine is entirely automated by the uh, company for for the most part. Yes. Like, so I guess well, at the time we didn't have it. To, yeah, you still we needed to do electronic tricks to sort of. Uh, well, no, we were extremely lucky um, in this, in that, uh, as we discussed, the difference between engineering and, and physics. Um, in the group, we had uh, very good, we had very experienced people in programming. So we actually had, we are, we had home written programs to uh, direct the electron beam in the areas we wanted. And this really facilitated uh, the research that we were doing. Um, so uh, as you see, the, the, the cross-linking between engineering, electronic engineering, software engineering, physics, I, I have hard time to uh, decouple them. I, I think somehow we need them all. And uh, I mean, also the Cavendish Laboratory is not just any place in physics, right? It's, uh, forgot who's really famous. Is it Rutherford, maybe, who... 
who is it famous? I mean, uh, Cavendish is also famous himself. Cavendish, right? yes. Well, there are there are quite a few famous uh, people who uh, went through the Cavendish. Cavendish, of course, changed location in physics. I was, I think, from the more recent um, physicists that um, that are famous was Sir Neville Mott and uh, Brian Josephson, who I had the pleasure actually of having some seminars with. Um, as in our first year the, uh, of PhD, we were encouraged to attend series of seminars by by professors in the Cavendish itself. Yeah, Brian Josephson had a very successful PhD. That, indeed, that much can be said. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, the these these kind of um, devices also require cryogenics, right? So during your PhD, you yes, all already worked with cryogenics. I think wasn't yes. Piotr Kapitza at Cavendish? Yes, he was indeed. But like it was still the old Cavendish. Uh, we already were in the new so-called temporary building that after 50 or 60 years is finally uh, going to... But as we know at uh, RWTH Aachen, Jülich and Cologne, all buildings are temporary. Yes, I think it must be a common theme for all physics departments. <laughs> um, so, okay. Um, so, I, I just back to the cryogenics question, sorry. Um, so, uh, I guess the, the cryogenics you worked with then were not so different from what we have today. It was just also a bit more hand... Uh, That's correct. Hand yes, it's, um, it's true that there is no much difference. My final experiments were performed in dilution refrigerators. I remember it was a fantastic workout. We didn't need any gym. <laughs> Inserting the probe, it was top-loading uh, fridge and the, the uh, sample rod was rather heavy. I still remember practicing loading it. Um, and um, the other difference is that, again, I was probably the first generation of PhD students who benefited from having um, data acquisition program written by uh, Professor Chris Ford um, that allowed me to to run experiments, let's say, overnight without waking up every two hours to reset a parameter to carry on with experiments. Um, but in this sense, we also did things a little bit more manual than, than we do now. So yeah, in, in principle, this, your, your PhD was already the full sort of run of device physics as we practice it still, still today. Indeed, indeed, it's true. Um, mm. But so from your from your PhD in, in, in electronic devices, uh, you eventually ended up going more into the directions of photons, right? That is true. As so well. how did how did this happen? Um, when I was already finishing my PhD, it was about that time then the growth of indium arsenide and demonstration of the photonic properties uh, has been demonstrated. And after um, I still carried on transport measurement as, as a postdoc in Arizona and then Oxford. But then I joined Toshiba Research Lab in Cambridge. Um, and the theme of the lab was quantum com uh, communication. Um, the idea that I was employed to explore is the possibility of detection single uh, of detecting single photons by uh, charge-trapped 
photocharges trapped in quantum dots um, as seen by in, in transport through a narrow channel, narrow two-dimensional channel. So that, as you see, this, this um, change from transport to optical measurements happened gradually. And while in this lab, um, of course, there was also a work on single photon sources, um, and it became quite clear that uh, quantum dots are objects that are ideally suited as if to, to serve as single photon sources, maybe not as much as single photon detectors. Um, and I, um, since then, I really work on this um, inter um, on, on the interface between the two transport and optics yeah. fields. All right, let's we, we will um, try to finish up the uh, a bit the career story and then talk mm -hmm. more about about your research. Just a, a, a few a few uh, remarks still on the on the career. You have lived in five different countries and uh, done done research there at, at different places, and that's of course quite important uh, uh, to to um, to learn science from different um, uh, different ways of science and uh, different viewpoints. How important do you think this this moving around is? Um, five countries might be uh, <laughs> might, might not be necessary, that's for sure. Uh, however, I think it's very important to stay dynamic in, in the way we think. And um, exposure to different style of working, exposure to different methods of solving problems or even different methods of posing questions is always useful and interesting. Um, and in this sense, I think and it is very useful to be uh, to, to be embedded and work for longer than two weeks in a different lab. Um, of course, what I would also say is very important uh, is exposure to different culture. Um, science is very international. Uh, sooner or later, some of those who stay longer become leaders um, who look after young people from different countries and some understanding of cultural differences um, is always useful. So yeah maybe so you spent uh, so you grew up in Poland and, and, and studied there then you went to England and and uh, I mean then there's the US and uh, Scandinavia and Germany right mm -hmm. so, let's say yeah uh, um, I, I guess like um, The, the difference uh, uh, from from Poland to England is already quite big, right? In sort of the culture and yes, maybe among the contrasts, it seems yes. like a very striking yes. contrast. Um, yes, it's true, but still, I think U.S. is the biggest difference um, in us, especially culturally or socially. Um, scientifically, Denmark was an interesting place, partly because it's a small nation of only five million people. Um, and as you can imagine, um, the, the way funding works, the interactions between scientists uh, work very differently from large countries where by, you are unlikely to know everyone uh, doing an interesting science. Um, so that's, that's, I would say, are the biggest contrasts. And not only did I change countries, but I also changed, um, well, I was educated, I was brought up in still communist Poland, moved to hardcore capitalist US. So I've, I've seen quite a few changes in my life. <laughs> but I think I will reserve it for my uh, 
memoirs when I retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's true that there's certainly, uh, I think maybe a difference between the European way of science and the US way of science in terms of how, uh, how application focused or how fundamental research focused we are maybe, or maybe in a way of selling it more. But at any rate, Americans are very good at um, at uh, finding good ways to sell science. Maybe more. That so. is that is very true. Uh, that uh, the emphasis on selling is um, probably much more important in US than it is in Europe. Um, science is uh, perhaps it's associated with how it is funded. Perhaps it is also that in Europe, science uh, probably was always a little bit on the pedestal of um, of being something to look up to. Um, scientists, artists had a little bit different standing. I, I would say it's a long, longer tradition in Europe of um, science being part of a culture of a country. Whereas in America, it's uh, perhaps it was a little bit more a tool for economic growth, um, but um, I'm not. I'm not sure that. I mean, this has certainly uh, the incentive structure maybe is different, but it certainly works in terms of uh, yeah, in terms of producing results. It's, I think we can probably still learn some things from the American research community. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure if we can learn from the research or maybe from the innovation, so the transfer of research into um, into applications. That's where we have um, we have to learn from them. This is a bit good cue to maybe talk briefly about your time at Toshiba. So mm -hmm. I think this is also very interesting for any listeners who are academics or from outside academia, like because you have a, a, a like then a perspective on both. How, how was the research in a in a company like Toshiba? And Uh, it was extremely um, fulfilling. Um, it was very interesting. It's it's different in the sense that, of course, it was very much goal oriented um, and structured. Um, but the, uh, th th that was the price we paid for having being fully funded and not needing to spend the time to write grant proposals. Um, there was a short report of our results by the end of year to justify further funding. And then we could spend the rest of the year uh, really working in the lab and doing science. Um, may, I'm not sure how representative these laboratories of, of industrial environment, because we did work with PhD students from the Cavendish Laboratory. So it was uh, not too dissimilar to... Uh, to conduct to conducting research here in the Forschung Centrum, um, the the reporting was a little bit more, as I say, strategic, uh, or rather the goals were more strategic. Um, so it has its advantages for those who don't like writing grant proposals. And do you, do you think the company also um, for for a company like Toshiba I means a larger scale company, so they don't need immediate returns? But eventually they want something that can be sold, right? How, how does this yes. feel in the... Um, well, the um, large corporations like Toshiba uh, like to have uh, flagship projects 
that serve, serve a little bit uh, like um, advertisement. Um, and even though there was a specific goal of achieving QKD system that would be practical and a goal that has been achieved, at the same time, this research laboratory was uh, and, and the collaboration with Toshiba was seen very much as showing that um, the company works also on the longer-term projects. Uh, large companies uh, are not... Um, the, the benefit of large corporations from small labs as Toshiba would be patents that would be grouped together and sold, exchanged together. Uh, and therefore, uh, it, it might not feel so different to working in the academia in the sense that uh, even if you don't succeed to deliver a specific product, there will be, as long as there is innovation that can be patented, um, it is of value for the company. Was, was there more pressure to patent than here in Jülich? Definitely, yes. But there was also much more support to do so. Okay. Because, yeah, I, I think that for the German, like, or, or me, maybe even for the greater European science, there has been more, I think I've now more science, science friends who have patented some of their research. I think PhD students are getting more encouraged to do it yes. than, than, let's say, 10 years ago even. Uh, that is true. But it's still, yeah, it's... Uh, It's, it's tricky. Is, it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money, and writing a successful uh, patent is not a trivial, uh, not a trivial task, um, because you have to be aware of uh, phrasing your innovation in the way that cannot be easily overcome. And, and uh, an input from patent agents uh, teaching how to write is very important. It's a very different skill from writing proposals or writing papers. Um, and, there, uh, and therefore, as I said, support is really very important. So your, your career basically led you to now being an expert on electronic devices and optics, <laughs> which you hear in your research at Jülich bring together, right? So you that are, is true. You, the core of your research is bringing together electronics and optics and, that and, is right. and coupling. Um, and material science plays a key role there. What's your, what's your materials, what's, what are the material systems that you see as the key material systems for light matter interaction? Or is um, so... Um, it does seem that um, gallium arsenide-based heterostructures um, are extremely successful in light matter interactions. Um, the advantage, or maybe maybe I start differently, um, indium arsenide quantum dots became really a workhorse of semiconductor quantum optics. Um, and I, I, I think it reached the maturity that we can use it in devices to create more complex photonic states. And that's where work is, the current research is really in perfecting single photon sources or photon sources from, from indium arsenide quantum dots in order uh, to employ them in quantum optics experiments. Um, so I think this material will stay with us for, for, for some time. 
Uh, but as I say, it reached maturity of almost engineering problem. Uh, on the other hand, um, the discovery of photoluminescence from transition, transition metal dichalcogenides um, caught attention of pretty much everyone who works with quantum optics, both in atomic systems and in semiconductor systems. Um, at the moment, there is a lot of work on fundamental properties of these materials. Um, and uh, a bit on engineering. So I expect that we will hear a lot about new physics coming from, from this material system. Okay, so maybe, yeah, let's try to cover a little bit of the basics in a way that people can understand. I don't know how, this is always a difficult part, but so to understand light matter interaction, so you have these photons and they come in and then you have a semiconductor and but in reality there's usually this talk about like quantum dots and excitons why do we why 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 are these things what what is the way that that the light and um light and matter interact and why why how do why is this material engineering there so important mm -hmm. so um Semiconductors are the class of materials which have just the, uh, the right band gap um, that you require a photon of specific energy to be able to excite an electron from the valence band to the conduction band. Um, if you have bulk material, of course, you don't know where this electron, uh, where this photon is going to be absorbed. Um, there is huge number of electrons in the valence band that can be excited into conduction band. And we all know that by doing so, we generate, um, we generate electricity with solar panels or we have photon detectors. Um, uh, however, if you want to um, perform experiments on the quantum optics level, you need to isolate one quantum state you need to isolate uh, you need to isolate an electron uh, that will be absorbing light uh, in order to be able to convert the quantum information uh, in the more deterministic way this is why um, quantum dots and this is why quantum dots are used because there you really um, limit number of electrons that are capable of uh, absorbing a photon uh, and uh, creating excitation in, as a result. And you also, this exciton is just right that you have uh, 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 some part of the semiconductor that gets excited by the, by one photon, right? That's what That's we call right. an exciton. Ex exciton is electron hole pair that um, is bound by Coulomb interactions. Um, if you take gallium arsenide at room temperature, uh, you are simply creating electron hole pairs. They are independent, they move through the crystal independently. And these Coulomb interactions that in gallium arsenide require lower temperatures mean that it, you form a quasi-particle um, of electron and hole. And so this, um, in, in this interaction of light and matter somehow uh, let's say this this quantum dot. Uh, let's let's maybe first talk about the quantum dot. So the quantum dot is, uh, for example, a different material. Like you have this gallium arsenide, and you have a little bit of a different material. For example, this indium arsenide, yes. where you have sort of an island, right? You are very right that we should start from defining quantum yeah. dot. This yeah. is uh, this is an 
object in which electron motion is restricted in all three directions. So three-dimensional quantum well, or would, would, it's never, I'm never would, sure would if I should say zero or three. Would you call like a, like you can also just have a single atom in the gallium arsenide that is in the like in the like you know an, a donor? Yes, you can. And in principle, this donor is also sort of like a quantum dot, right? It, it also is capable of trapping a single, single exciton, yes. Yeah. We, wouldn't call it, uh, we wouldn't call it quantum dots, uh, but you, it is capable of trapping single fo uh, single exciton, and therefore it could also serve uh, as two-level system. Which is why it's so important to make these materials perfect, right? Because somehow yes. these out-of-place atoms or wrong atoms or play a very important role. They do play a very important role. Most uh, most of the time, the, uh, we have variety of methods to isolate photons. One of them, or isolate excitons, one of them is wavelength, uh, that uh, an object, if, if we come with a photon of specific wavelengths, only some of the states can be excited. Um, so in this sense, your um, donors or defects around quantum dot might not be so detrimental, um, but they can serve as, um, as an intermediate state which would um, absorb the energy after generation and then lead to, let's say, non-radiative re recombination. So indeed, purity is very, very important isolation of this two-level system in such a way that the electron will remain there and will uh, you can do your state processing, quantum processing, and uh, in there is very important. So one of the reasons gallium arsenide is so good is because people have been perfecting it for a long time, right? Yes. Uh, we have uh, fantastic methods to grow very pure crystals. Um, and the wonderful, the wonderful um, feature of this material system is that we have two. We have um, a continuum of band gaps between gallium arsenide and aluminium arsenide, um, associated with um, crystals of the same crystal structure and lattice constant. What it means that you can grow any combination of gallium arsenide and aluminium gallium arsenide of any composition, layer by, la by layer, uh, without creating defects. So you can form quantum wells that will confine electrons, but you can also grow um, microcavities uh, that trap photons um, in, uh, in one crystal structure where atoms sit exactly in the positions um, yeah that's right because the the um uh, refractive indices for the gallium, gallium arsenide, arsenide and aluminum are, are different are, yes are different so you can yes. you can use this to, mm -hmm. to to manipulate the light interaction indeed so yeah it's really it, it's, it is quite a unique material it's also it's a semiconductor which means that you can put some you know metal on the back of it and you can you can change the properties by putting a voltage. Right? And you can introduce doping, so you can create PN junctions um, to create, for example, light-emitting diodes or uh, control the electrostatic environment. Uh, it, it is a very versatile material in this respect. Is, is doping a blessing or a curse? Um, if it is remote, it's blessing. <laughs> if it is uh, near the object of interest, it, uh, interest, it can be a curse. 
Yeah, because it's it's kind of a very interesting problem is how to you like in this material you usually don't have necessarily free electrons, so you need to especially when it's cold. Mm -hmm. So you need to put these dopants. But these dopant lens, like there's a very important question of how to sort of introduce doping, but without introducing noise from doping, right? That is very true. Um, the one, uh, the one, one way to do it is to use remote doping. So, so displace your electron gas from the layer where the dopants are. Um, and um, and a second rule is, uh, this is why we use low temperature. Um, charges are frozen and don't necessarily, if structure is grown properly and we don't have additional defects, um, the charges are frozen at the sides of dopants which are not ionized and don't introduce much noise. Okay, so let's, yeah, let's maybe look, talk a bit about the application. So the device that we want is we want a device where you press a button and it emits a photon. Those are devices that we have. What we want to do in our project is to combine the device that you described, a photon emitter, uh, with quantum processor based on spin uh, qubits realized also in gallium arsenide, but using um, gating, so uh, qubits which can be electrically manipulated. So essentially you want your single photon source to be able to talk to a uh, more like a, a, another type of qubit in the same material. That is right. And the reason to do that is the following. Um, if we want to transfer information, uh, photonic qubits, of course, are the medium of choice. They don't interact with matter very strongly, so they can be transported far distance. Um, but there is a limit to this distance. Um, information gets lost if we transfer information too far. And we need to, uh, in classical uh, telecommunication, you simply installed an amplifier that amplifies optical signal and send it further. Um, no cloning theory tells us we cannot do it with quantum states. So we have to find another way. And the, the way to do it is to create a device called quantum repeater. Um, these quantum repeaters are likely to be um, small quantum processors for example, such as can be realized by spin qubits, um, which are ar arranged to interact with each other. Uh, so the, the, the role of um, this device is to make a connection between photonic qubits and quantum, ultimately quantum processors that would be able to, to read, um, purify the information and, and send it further. So we have a qubit that wants to talk to another qubit through a photon, or? Um, so you can imagine that I want to send a qubit very far from um, beyond what the, the distance of direct transmission is. Um, and I want to have this qubit um, absorbed uh, in the quantum repeater uh, where the information will be um, read, conditioned, and sent further. Um, is this like a completely reciprocal process? Like, um, is it is there a difference between you know sending out the photon or catching it, or do you think both of these processes are equally hard? Like, you just need to get it to work and. 
I will be able to answer it once we start okay. uh, preparing, uh, making experiments. Both um, both come with their own challenges. Another really important challenge is to you have your photon. You want, I guess, gallium arsenide is somewhere in the infrared, if I remember. Uh, it has, yes, it is near infrared. Which is infrared. not so bad, right? Because no, for telecommunication purposes, that's not such a bad wavelength or... Uh, it is not a very convenient wavelength okay. for uh, for telecom uh, for, for fiber communication, and gallium arsenide uh, band gap lies at uh, 800 uh, nanometers. Quantum dots, depending on the size, are somewhere near 900 nanometers. The telecom preferred uh, wavelength is 1550 yeah. nanometers. So factor two, roughly. Uh, and uh, we need to be able to to convert the wavelength. Would it be easier if it was exactly a factor two? Uh, no, it wouldn't make much difference. Perhaps it would even make it worse. Um, right. However, the wavelength is not too bad for free optics communication, which is 850. Again... I'm not sure that uh, so, yeah, I mean, we exactly. still there's, might need to several, have wavelength conversion. There's several uh, engineering challenges there yes. for sure. Mm -hmm. Like getting the photon from a fiber into the material. But that's maybe not the hardest part. I think the harder part is getting a photon from the material into the fiber. Uh, fibers are only a few micron in diameter. Um, the mode of the photon is Gaussian. If you take bulk material like gallium arsenide, the emission goes in the entire sphere and you collect very small fraction of all photons that are generated. So there are a lot of challenges to force the photons emitted by a... Yeah. We should maybe mention that classically this is very easy because if you just want to you know, communicate using light, you don't mind if you lose a certain fraction. Indeed. But Almost as soon as if it's a single photon, you... You really want to have like an 80% success rate or something. Oh, like you this. really want 100%. <laughs> I mean, of, of course, but I mean, 80% would already be pretty good. I think. Or at least a lot of the experiments right now are running at... at maybe a lot 80%. of experiments are run with uh, efficiencies of uh, even less than uh, 80%. But if you, if you look closely, uh, every conclusion to a paper that uses a source with uh, 80% efficiency will make a remark to we need better efficiency. Having said that, uh, current fabrication techniques uh, show that you can now get uh, efficiencies in the 90s. So, so your research is really at the point, uh, an interaction point. So I think uh, this is like, so the, the ML4Q cluster is about bringing different research groups together. So uh, on the coupling with the uh, um, quantum dot qubits, you work with Hendrik Bloom, right? That is correct. And uh, um, uh, so how, how, how is, the, is the cluster helpful in uh, facilitating these kinds of collaborations? Is there, do you think that? Yes, I think it is essential actually for the collaborations. What is very exciting as well, of course, I, uh, on, on this particular device, I work with Henrik. Bloom, uh, who is an expert on in spin qubits, um, and on the other hand, on the connection between the photon generated in this device and fiber, we collaborate with uh, two groups. Uh, we collaborate with University in Bonn. Uh, there, um, we have 
a lab uh, full of experts in manipulating photons um, and, 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 and we work on wavelength conversion that you mentioned already. Uh, we also collaborate on methods to extract light efficiently without sacrificing the property of light. Um, we also work with uh, ILT in, uh, in Aachen uh, with uh, also wavelength conversion, but for a different purpose. So um, the collaboration in Aachen is more related to sending photons through lo long links, 15-50 nanometers, the telecom wavelength. The collaboration in Bonn, we want to achieve a connection between our quantum dots and um, um, ionic spin qubits, uh, which are subject of research of Michael Cole. Can I, can I maybe ask, uh, because we were now talking briefly ab about Bonn, like the quantum dots you can see as artificial atoms, right? But now there's also a lot of research into using real, I mean, there has been, I mean, a lot of the most impressive optical research early on was always done with real yes. atoms, right? Um, uh, what do artificial atoms do better than real atoms and what do they do worse? Hmm. Uh, what they do better. Um, we have ability to tune wavelengths of emission to some degree. Uh, and uh, you mentioned already semiconductors uh, allow you to, um, for example, dope materials, uh, which means that we can easily incorporate electrostatic uh, manipulation of, uh, of states. Not to mention that we can integrate, uh, create uh, integrated systems. For example, our mirrors can be incorporated in the same crystal. Um, that that means that devices are a little bit more stable, um, easier to manufacture. Once they are there, they are robust. Uh, what do we do worse? We are susceptible to noise from defects uh, in the material. Um, Yeah, I think that is the biggest challenge, that we are susceptible to noise, um, which you don't necessarily have in a vacuum. Uh, on, on this experimental challenge, maybe just uh, as, a, as a quick question also, how difficult is the challenge of bringing optics and cold temperatures uh, together? Do you see this as a, like, as how much of the challenge mm. is cryogenics? It's not a big problem, partly because typical... Um, Experiments on pure optical systems require relatively high temperatures, which is just uh, liquid helium temperature. The device we are working uh, with, of course, needs the temperature uh, dilution refrigerators, uh, 100 millikelvin temperatures, because we need to operate the spin qubits. Uh, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging in the sense that the volume that you can cool down is perhaps a bit smaller which means that we cannot put optical lenses uh, to collect light very efficiently. Uh, however, it is not a fundamental problem. It has been realized in a variety of labs, uh, the, the, the matter of cooling of the systems is solved. All right, cool. Um, maybe uh, I should ask uh, at least one question about the, about the uh, monolayer Uh, semiconductors. These are the transition metal like calculations. 
which are uh, uh, stuff like tungsten diselenite or molybdenum diselenite. Right. What are these? What are these? What what makes this work? What, what's 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 uh, special about these systems? Mm. These are all pretty heavy elements, right? They are very heavy elements. Um, so you are very right. Spin orbit interactions are extremely strong. Uh, but perhaps what is even more exciting for optics community is that um, they are true two-dimensional systems, uh, which by definition increases the binding energy of excitons, so increases the excitonic effects by factor of four. Uh, and on top of that, the electrostatic screening is very weak. We don't have the high dielectric constant of classic semiconductors. And that increases uh, the Coulomb interactions between particles even further. Um, so this is a very, very unique system to study many body effects. Um, complexes of five charges, um, three electrons, two holes have been observed. Um, of course, Bose-Einstein condensation becomes much easier to observe. Um, and these things are exfoliated, right? So it's a little bit gra like graphene or not? It is very much like graphene. Most of the initial experiments have been done on exfoliated material. Uh, for, for the non-experts, the Scotch tape method, Scottish right? Scottish tape you, method, you take, yes. You take tape and you put it on the crystal Absolutely. and you rip it off. And Absolutely. You get a single atom layer. Yes, yes. Uh, in this case, three, uh, three atomic layers, but uh, very much the case. Um, of course, methods to grow them into layers are coming along very fast as well. And uh, wait, your, your work is also partially helped by the work of these two Japanese heroes who make the, who make this, uh, what's Oh, it, yes, uh, yes, yes. It's the boron nitride, the, the boron magic nitride. boron nitride. <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. There's these two Japanese guys who are probably the most successful scientists of all time. It seems to be the case <laughs> that they are the only ones who produce, um, high quality boron nitride, uh, which doesn't have any charge traps and uh, makes in, makes um, efficient cladding for our tung uh, tungsten diselenide or molybdenum diselenide, which we mostly work on. So you make a sandwich, basically. This is a this sandwich, yes. So, of course, the drawback of working with any two-dimensional material is that exposure to uh, uncontrolled environment. Uh, so uh, there is a lot of effort into making this sandwich structures with graphene uh, as contacts, boron nitrate as cladding, and two-dimensional two material uh, of, in our case, semiconducting monolayers in the middle. All right. Let's yeah. Mm -hmm. Let, let's maybe do a brief intermission with rapid questions to to uh, to to. Um Go just over some quick, uh, you know, either or questions, maybe with short justifications. So I have to ask because you worked in both Oxford or Cambridge. I guess you're Team Cambridge or <laughs> Team Cambridge. Um, science or engineering? You also already answered, sort of. Science, I think. Uh, academia or industry? Academia. Um, optical table or clean room? Optical table. <laughs> And uh, telecom wavelength or optical light? Optical light. All right. And uh, then uh, the, the gallium arsenide or tungsten diselenide? Or, or the... Tough question. Yeah. No answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad, bad to answer. You have PhD <laughs> students working on both, I guess, and you don't, you don't no, have No, even answer. if I didn't have both, they are so different, you cannot compare. Um, 
Quantum Optics or, or Material Science? Quantum Optics. And uh, BB84 or E91? Uh, I think it's E91. E91. So you prefer the entanglement over the superposition, let's say, I guess. Yes, I think it's uh, it's it's more interesting. You know? For the for the non these are these are uh, just letters to the non-initiate, but to the to the quantum physicist, they are protocols of how to how to send uh, keys. Secret yes. keys with quantum mechanics. And it's the difference between single photons and entangled photon pairs. Yeah. So we will just briefly now talk a bit about the future. Maybe just a few outlook questions. Do you believe that there will be a quantum internet for everyone? Um, I'm not sure what to answer. I would rather answer by posing a question. Do we believe that everyone will need quantum internet? Um I feel that um, the vulnerability of Internet as we know it is not in the data transfer at the moment. We hear all the news about hacking and, uh, and, and they usually come from hacking into stationary bits on stored in computers rather than intercepting networks. And it is true that with quantum computers, our current... Um, coding uh, methods will be vulnerable to attacks, but there is also the post-quantum codes which are being developed by mathematicians. And perhaps uh, those will be sufficient not to uh, sufficient to make sure that networks are still not the most vulnerable place. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. I, I was going to also ask if the governments would allow secure <laughs> communication between their people. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my answer to that is a little provocative. And uh, <laughs> uh, looking at uh, recent battles of governments with high-tech companies makes me wonder if governments will have say in it full stop. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that, is, that is a good comment. That's true. And I mean, it's it's true that in principle, the, the 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 type of cryptography that we have is pretty hard to hack. Although it did come out from time to time that there was known backdoors that uh, maybe people at some secret agencies knew about uh, early on. Yes, yes, but um, that is true. So my my question was a bit provocative. Of course, I'm not saying that we are all sorted uh, with uh, security of networks, but I wouldn't say that. Um, data transfer is the most vulnerable part of the network. Yeah, maybe maybe a really I think a really key question in the quantum technologies that we are all working on. Do we have to eventually make physicists more engineering focused to make stuff that that works and works reliably, or do we have to teach just engineers how you know? Do we have to work out the physics and then just teach engineers and then get the physicists out of there? You know. <laughs> no, I think we need both. But uh, as as might be apparent from everything we said today, I do not see that there is such a big gap as uh, as we are made to believe by having separate courses for engineers and for physicists. And uh, do you think this this new master's project master's program uh, uh, will will help? Uh, Like, do you think that that this this type of um, educating a new generation to to sort of think as quantum engineers will this drive? Can can um, we can we create? Absolutely, a I think it's a very good idea. Uh, what is exciting as well <clears throat> that we have this course run in parallel in the Department of Physics, and 
engineering. Um, again, I repeat, although we have this system of independent department of physics and engineering, if you look at individual person, uh, where the heart lies is always somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being exposed to two sides of the picture is, uh, is the right approach. Uh, um, as we have this Now, let's say people sometimes talk about this Rhineland Silicon Valley, quantum Silicon Valley or something like this, right? um, How important is it to have industry involvement at some at some level? Do you think that one part of the US success in uh, in the quantum technologies is that um, uh, they have the company, the semiconductor company? companies that are already ready to, you know, or companies like Toshiba in, in mm-hmm. England to, to interface with research and, 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 and catch it early. Do, do you need this to, to make this research? It certainly helps. I would say it helps to have industry. Uh, part of the reason is that for a concept to become a product, there is much more than uh, simply prov- showing that it operates. Um, if you look at QKD, uh, quantum key distribution systems, um, demonstrating uh, or oh, demonstrating that it's possible to um, to sense uh, photons and um, and code information uh, on quantum in the quantum state uh, was not enough to persuade users to uh, to uh, to adopt it. And there was a very long pass in uh, creating, uh, in um, standardizing it, approving it and uh, convincing users that they will buy a product uh, according to some standards and therefore they will be able to expect some, um, some performance. And this is where I think we academics do not have the resources, we don't have the experience to do it. Um, so we cannot quite specify what will be needed, and and companies are much better in market research and understanding the needs and converting a concept into a product. Yeah, maybe maybe because I'm 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 a little bit of a quantum optics nerd as well sometimes. Just I, I got to ask this question, but we're we're getting to the end, so it's, it's fine if I I ask some question. I I, I mean in, in 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 superconducting circuits which I work on, it's pretty easy to squeeze light, mm-hmm. but maybe not necessarily. I mean also people do single photon stuff in the gigahertz regime, and and both of these things produce interesting quantum states. Very true. Um, so there's sort of these two paths in quantum optics, which is to make non-classical light from from single photons and to make non-classical light via this kernel mm-hmm. linearity and squeezing. Mm-hmm. And in materials research, this is also quite interesting, right? Because you have yes. very different material science approaches to both of them. Very true, uh, very true. Um, you have, uh, th- there are two competing uh, technologies or two competing, maybe not even competing, there are the two concepts uh, that can be used to to do interesting quantum optics. Both of them are challenging, maybe not even on the, well, uh, effectively it's always a material challenge. Uh, With squeezed states, you have to control phase of uh, of a photon of, of a state very well. And um, that means that you have to control your environment very much. Even the smallest change of temperature 
will affect phase of a propagating uh, pulse of light. And this is very challenging to um, to achieve. Having said that, of course, the most convincing demonstration of um, quantum supremacy comes from uh, exactly boson sampling of squeezed states. Um, but this was extremely well-controlled environment. When it comes to single photons, the biggest problem is, of course, loss of uh, photons in, in uh, as they propagate. Um, but this Just to interject, you, you think loss is a bigger problem than making identical single photon sources? Or? Not always identical photons are necessary. Ah, when okay, they yeah. are necessary, yes, it is also <laughs> challenging. Um, but uh, I, I think overall still, when we talk about communication, is the photon loss um, that uh, that is the, the, hard, the, the most um, limiting factor. Here, however, um, a concept of cluster states, which are entangled states of many photons, are proposed to overcome this problem. Um, so both of these light sources I can, should be still explored to, to find yeah, yeah, we, we don't know yet what will, be the, what will be the system medium, that ultimately yes. works. Well, then, uh, I, think, I think we are at a good point to stop. Thank you a lot for, for, for doing this podcast episode with mm -hmm. us. It was a, a pleasure to, to learn your, uh, about your, your career and research. If, do you have any, anything that uh, we didn't discuss that we should still have, have mentioned? I think we sh there is one thing that I should make clear. In your questions about uh, quantum internet, I gave an answer which could imply that I don't believe in it, <laughs> <laughs> which is not true. Uh, so I should uh, finish with one remark that I do believe that we need quantum internet, uh, for example, for distributed quantum computing. And there, there will be a variety of very specialized and important applications where we need quantum internet. Indeed, yeah, I, I think in, indeed, like the question whether um, individual people will need the quantum internet, indeed, that's a different question yes, from whether it will be question. useful. For, for building a large-scale So I do not want to leave you with an impression that we are wasting time by researching quantum internet quite opposite. <laughs> no, indeed. So yes, the quantum internet will hopefully be the place where you listen to this uh, podcast in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and with this, uh, thank you. And, uh, yeah. Thank you, sir.